0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In today's episode, Tim is going to talk about a big event that happens every year in the spring where a large man gets into an a rabbit costume and hides his eggs in people's yards. You're horrendous. Yes. So no, we're not going to talk about that, but we are going to talk about Easter and uh, the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus, right?
1: Yeah. it's content. We're going to talk about uh, Harold Honer his book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and kind of walk through it. I thought it might be an appropriate content for this week, Passover, Easter.
0: Absolutely. But before we do that, as always, we have some thinklings business to tend to.
1: Books and business.
0: Let's talk about some books.
1: All right, so I'm starting us off, and uh, I'm going to talk about a book that I have been listening to. I'm getting 3rd of I'm about two-thirds through Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, kind of a classic piece of literature. I found it very interesting, fascinating. Frankenstein is kind of a pitiable creature, uh, I don't, my perceptions of Frankenstein have just always been in popular media, which is not an accurate representation of Mary Shelley's creation in the book. Um, but he's kind of like a sad creature that just wants to have some kind of company and friendship and companionship. Um, and, but he has quite a temper and he gets angry and then he does really bad things and he's really big and strong. So, um, at this time, um, Mr. Frankenstein, I guess I uh, his his creation. He needs to create another one because the big, I guess, Frankenstein's creation. It's not Frankenstein. That's the big the big machine thing. But um, anyway, he's gonna create another one. So I'm just kind of part partly into it. Uh, it's just an interesting interesting take on uh, man and anthropology. Can uh, what would it look like if man created a, a man? And that's what he's doing. He's creating a man. So fascinating in light of the 1800s and even the abolition of man and that hideous strength and Lewis and how he interacted with that same idea.
0: When was it written?
1: I'm pretty sure it was the 1800s.
0: So Lewis would have certainly interacted with this.
1: Yeah, the whole idea, the primacy and power of science and science is going to be the solution to all things.
0: Which is, we've talked about mm-hmm. kind of modernism and you know, the optimism of, of society with what we're able to accomplish. And yeah, so that, that definitely fits into some of those themes. We I feel like we should have Josh Boyd to talk about this. He, yeah. he and I have talked about Frankenstein before, and uh, that would be a fun, we should bring him back. When you finish that, we should get Dr. Boyd here. Boom. Yeah. So as we mentioned on a previous episode, Uh, Thinkling Stearns is traveling a little bit with his wife's treatment, and so he is not able to be here with this podcast recording, but we do have from him a books in business. So I'm going to patch that in here. You'll be able to listen to Thinkling Stearns talk about his book, and then we'll jump back to my book
2: everybody. Uh yeah. So when we're recording this, I'm in Iowa City right now with my wife. She's having her second chemotherapy treatment. And so it was just not possible for me to zoom at the time that worked with Tim or Charlie and or uh, make it back and record. So this is my books and business. Uh it's interesting when you're at a hospital for treatments like this, you both have extra downtime and then you both don't have any time at all. It's the weirdest thing. It's really hard to have a schedule. Because it's, it's just very unpredictable what's going on. The nurse coming in to check on vitals. Uh, you've got to go do this, and you got to figure out where to put the car and park. And there's just a bunch of things. You don't, you know, you get this idyllic picture that you'll be in there and you'll be typing up a whole bunch of emails and stuff. But man, it's hardly been that at all. Um, so, anyways, we're in chemotherapy this week, and Robin's doing well. Um, it's you know rough like chemotherapy, but I think the biggest challenge for us this week is you can probably hear it in my voice. I have been sick with a really nasty, uh, sinus thing for over a week now. My kids had it for the previous two weeks, I would say a week and a half ish, two weeks. And then Robin also has it. And that's been a bummer because we almost thought we wouldn't be able to start treatment this time. Uh, but she's got a really nasty sore throat and I don't have that and so literally, she's getting chemo, and her throat is just so sore. So it's been one of those, uh, you know, you got a trial and then you need a little extra trial right on top. Uh, but I have in the downtime been able to read some stuff while I'm sitting there in the spare moments here and there. So for my books in business, I'm gonna talk about a book called Side by Side uh by Ed Welch. Side by Side by Ed Welch. And this is a counseling book. I had decided that I wanted to take um, a little break from the heavy, deep philosophical and or theological stuff. And um, I really enjoy counseling. I always have. Um, it's been a while since I picked a book up. And I, I bought Heath Lambert's uh, counseling philosophy book a while back and all that. Uh, but anyways, I was on Tim Challey's A La Carte a week or two ago, and this book popped up for two ninety nine, And I thought, hey, that sounds really interesting. So uh, let's just go ahead and I'm, I'm not going to tell you about the whole thing. I'm only... Oh, I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I'm 30. I'm 40 pages into it, so 20 percent of the book. But it's really interesting. So the premise of the book is he says this. This is a quote. The basic idea is that those who help best are the ones who both need help and give help. And so the, the book is set up in the table of contents in two major sections. Part one is we are needy. We are needy. Sorry, if you can't understand. I'm trying to use good enunciation here with this head cold. But it talks about how all of us have needs in life to be counseled by other people. And when you think counseling, don't think only formal counseling. Ed Welch is one of the main guys in the biblical counseling movement. But what he is probably, I think I could say this, what he would be saying is it's discipleship a lot of times that we're talking about. And so in the we are needy section, the first part, you've got six chapters one about life being hard, one about your heart being full and busy, one about circumstances, one about sin, and then how to say help to the Lord and how to say help to other people. And so it's ways to receive help in the areas that might cause us to say see our need for help. The second half of the book is we are needed, and so chapter seven. Remember, we have the Spirit now. If I was if I was in front of Tim and Charlie right now, I'd be looking over at Charlie and saying, Charlie, this is a, this is going like hand in hand with your discipleship material. Um, but I will digress. So chapter seven, remember we have the spirit and then it's, it's strategic, uh, topics on how to reach out to other people, how to be there to help other people. Chapter nine sounds particularly interesting, how to have thoughtful conversations. So I'm really excited about this book. It's been a while since I've read a counseling book and I've read quite a few. Um, but this one just looks really good, like a good change of pace. Um, so it's Ed Welch. You know what you're going to get. It's going to be good stuff. Uh, Yeah, so anyways, Side by Side uh, by Ed Welch, and that is my books in business.
0: So my church, Maranatha Baptist Church in Grimes, we went through Side by Side, uh, I want to say just a couple years ago, but I think it was longer, I think it was like 2019. It was before COVID, Um, but we did that in like small groups, and I, so it's been a while, but I remember it being a good book. Ed Welch is always uh, a great author to think about counseling and, and walk through some of those things. And so, yeah, side by side. You have not read that?
1: I've not. It's um, I've heard really good things about it. I've had a few churches that have gone through it. Uh, so, yeah, I, it'd be interesting to see how Stearns rates it after, after he's finished.
0: Yeah. So what I have for my book is this is a book that I sign in some of my classes, and I have an anecdote that goes along with it. So... Here's the anecdote. I was in Canada uh, a handful of years ago and stopped in at a church uh, on the path of ministry and things like that. And this book was given to me. And the name of the book is Real Life Discipleship. And then the subheading, which on the book's cover, which Tim is looking at, is above the heading, so it's confusing to read. But the name is Real Life Discipleship, subheading, Building Churches That Make Disciples. And so this book was given to me by a pastor at a church. And I have an anecdote within the anecdote is that I had a professor (laughs) once tell me that whenever you get a book for free, remember, there is a reason that you're getting it for free. So maybe it's not a good book. Maybe it's like someone like shamelessly plugging something. I don't know. But so I always,
1: yeah, I, what, what do you take from that?
0: I just, I, I <laughs> say that to my students, like to prime the pump as they're about to read it. And, um, uh, so yeah, it's talking about discipleship and I'm not going to get into it heavily right now, but I will say I do like some of the, th- this is what's going to happen whenever you read a counseling book or a discipleship book is there's going to be things that you read and you instantly think, oh, that's great oh, that's not great, you know? And then it's easy to not understand an author on their own terms, but like I can see the words that they're writing and I can assume that they mean the same thing as me, but that's not always fair to the author because they might not mean what I think they mean. So uh, truthfully, you don't really know what's going on in a book until you read it a second or a third time unless you like really meticulously take your time. And that's the issue when people get to talking about discipleship is it's a word that we throw around all the time.
1: And it sells well.
0: Yeah, it sells, it preaches. And, but what, what you mean, or I mean, or Tim means, or Andy means, or Jim Putnam, who's the author of that book, what he means when he says discipleship, we might, we might all have differing definitions. And so when you read a book about discipleship, you have to understand how are they defining discipleship? Okay. And he does that in his opening chapters. He goes to, I think it's Matthew chapter four. And he talks about the, this little story where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he breaks that down. So they have to do something. They have to follow then he's going to do something to them. I will make you. And so he reads into that. I will make you like, there's this change this transformation. And then what are, the, what does he make them into? Fishers of men. So I'm going to make you someone who goes and finds other people, you know, and that's a big emphasis in his book is that a disciple makes disciples. Like that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so there's parts of that definition that I really like. Uh, he uses a three-part, alliterated uh, outline.
1: Oh, it's got to be good then.
0: It's your head, it's your heart, it's your hands.
1: Oh, that sounds familiar.
0: Your head, you understand who Jesus is. You like you accept Him as your Lord, mm-hmm. and then your heart gets changed. Jesus makes you mm-hmm. into someone new, and then you do stuff. Your hands, yep. your and so I, I actually. Really like that.
1: Yeah. I've Organizes
0: seen. it well. Mm-hmm. Um, however, and this is, that's just, I think that's like chapter two. Uh,
1: I've seen that slogan on a lot of different literature and institutions head, yep. heart, hands.
0: Yeah. Not, it's I not mean, bad. they would be very consistent with what we say. Mm-hmm. You know, you need a change of affection, and that is driven by what you know is true. So, mm-hmm. head, heart, mm-hmm. and then you follow through in obedience. We, we we've said things very mm-hmm. similar to that. And so, um, yeah, not, I'm not going to rate it. I, I'm going to, I'm in the midst of going through it again with my class for my class. And, uh, so I'm going to hold my final judgments for when I've completed the the audit. But typically what I don't like about most discipleship material, which, you know, the pendulum swings the other way when you write your own book, um, I don't feel like there's an emphasis enough on walking in the spirit.
1: Right. Trials and yep. how you respond.
0: That in uh, my pastor uh, talked about this on Sunday and uh, he talked about, you know, uh, it, it, we just finished March. There's a lot of basketball that gets played in March. Oh, His illustration was the shot clock. Like the person who operates the shot clock, you have one thing. You watch when the ball hits the rim and you reset the shot clock. And he said, for a Christian, you have one thing, walk in the spirit. And we have a lot of ways that walking in the spirit is manifested. We obey the commands of God. But as we've said, you know, ad nauseum on this podcast, just because I'm doing the thing doesn't mean I'm doing it for the right reason. Uh, There are tons of people that obey things, do what's right, uh, for the wrong reason mm-hmm. And so how do you disciple? Is it just obey these laws? You know well, it's not less than that, right. But it is walking in the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so if you are under the spirit's control, there is no law. you do not gratify the flesh. like that that is the one thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like discipleship material quickly gravitates to other things.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. like he's going to do. Well, a real disciple makes other disciples Mm
1: -hmm.
0: is making other disciples doing discipleship, a fruit that you would expect of someone walking in the spirit. Yes. I would expect someone who's walking in the spirit to evangelize and to teach the truth and to be loving and gentle and kind and speak the truth in love. I would expect all those things of someone walking in the spirit. Just because someone is evangelizing does not mean they're walking in the spirit. In fact, I've actually seen people become very manipulative to share the gospel because they felt like that was the one thing mm. they had to do to be a disciple.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you can actually share the gospel and not be walking in the spirit. Like, okay. As, as antithetical as that sounds, Mm-hmm. That is possible. Just like any other Christian virtue. You could read your Bible for the wrong reason. You can go to church for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. You can be a good wife or husband for the wrong reason.
1: Mm.
0: You can obey your parents for the wrong reason. So that's where I, I don't ever like to make those things. The one thing.
1: Keep your eye on the rim.
0: Just exactly. Ooh, that was another illustration that my pastor, I just smacked my laptop. You probably all heard that. But uh yeah, you, the point of the game isn't to, uh, the point of basketball is not to stay in the lines and never go out of bounds and follow all the rules. The point of the game is to score the points. Mm -hmm. And I think for a Christian, it's really easy to think evangelism is scoring the points. But I actually think I would replace that with walking in the spirit. Because if you walk in the spirit, you're going to be doing all those other things. Anyway, so I talked way too long about that. But so, A lot of great things in the book. Uh, I'm going to reserve full judgment of it until I complete it and kind of think back through my own thoughts. Is that something you can do? (laughs) Anyway, so Real Life Discipleship by Jim Putnam is the book. I think it is a pretty decent resource. Um, You could do much, much worse as far as discipleship (laughs) material goes. And so, um, yeah, I'll give a judgment. I'll give a number on another episode.
1: Okay, so let's have a conversation about Passover and Easter. Uh, Easter is kind of a funny holiday. When is Easter this year?
0: Easter is this Sunday. It is. So this is a very current episode. <laughs> so uh, we might have a
1: few of those the next few weeks.
0: What is, is it, April 8th?
1: April 9th. 9th.
0: No, yeah, the 7th mm-hmm. is the Friday. Yeah.
1: So April 9th is Easter, and uh, Easter kind of moves around. Why in the world does Easter move around so much? Why don't we have an actual date?
0: Because rabbits like
1: warm spring weather. and They only come out at the right time. Wait, isn't that a groundhog? You're horrendous.
0: <laughs> if the groundhog sees his shadow, the Easter bunny can't lay eggs until a later date in April.
1: So Christmas, That's science. Christmas is always on December 25th. Why is Christmas always on December 25th?
0: Because that's the only time of the year that Santa can fly around and get presents to everybody.
1: It's so horrendous. He needs
0: a full calendar year to get those things
1: done. And he has to have it on the same year because he's old and he can't keep track of the date moving around all the time.
0: Because it takes him those other 364 days to work off all the milk and cookies he ate.
1: (laughs) Okay, so the real reason is because we have two different kinds of calendars. We have what's called a solar calendar and we have a lunar calendar. And uh, our calendar is based upon a solar calendar, uh, which is the sun. So uh, the revolutions around the sun, 365 days-ish. It's actually not quite 365 days. It's
0: got a little extra.
1: Yeah, it's got a little extra. In fact, we had a calendar. It was called the Julian calendar, which was 360, uh, 360, was it 4.25 or 5.25? I'll have it here in a little bit. But, um...
0: That's why every fourth year we have a weep day.
1: Yes, yeah, so a weep we day. We weep because
0: weep. we lost a day.
1: We lost a day or we get an extra one. Yes. So, uh, anyway, what is the actual... How many actually? It's 365 and a quarter. That's what it was. Yep. And then come 1750-ish or 1500s, they were noticing that there was some kind of a calendar glitch... Things weren't quite adding up quite right. The seasons were not coming at the right time. Easter was not coming at the right time. And uh, what, what was the cause of that? Well, they realized that the solar calendar is not actually 365.25 days, but it's 365.24219879. So it's a fraction, which isn't really a big deal unless you've been using that calendar for 1,500 years. And then that, uh, what is it, uh, 0.79, what, 79 thousandths of a day that that it's off starts to add up. So uh, in the 1750s, we actually changed calendars, and they switched to what's called the Gregorian calendar. And in September of, what, 1752 or something like that, 10 days disappeared, like they, they cut them out, gone, uh, to fix the calendar.
0: Just made it. Just made it happen.
1: Right. So whenever we're thinking through days and years, and thinking through, hey, you know what? What? Uh, what happened? Uh, You know, we use these dates like, oh, that happened on April 3rd or that happened on, um, you know, March 1st of 444 BC. I want you to just think through what we're doing there. (laughs) We're doing some crazy, crazy stuff. First of all, we're using the Gregorian calendar, which was, well religiously instituted in the 1500s, and then civilly instituted in around different times, but usually the 1750, a time period. All right, and we're reading back into a lunar calendar, because that's what the ancients would have used. And a lunar calendar had how many days?
0: uh 360
1: 360 days that's right and you might be like well how in the world that must have messed things up pretty badly well yeah it did and whenever they they needed another month they stuck another month in there mm. so every once in a while they have a year that's 13 months long instead of 12 months long It's that's, crazy it is it's crazy to us but that's why easter moves around because yep. easter is based upon a lunar calendar Christmas is based upon a solar calendar. So Christmas is always December 25th and Easter moves around. Yeah. Okay, so guess what that gets into? When did Jesus die? When did he rise from the dead? When did he rise from the dead? (laughs) And as we're trying to think through and even, you know, think through the the life of our Savior, we're mixing calendars. And so things get really complicated. Uh, And I even want to challenge you to think through, you know, what kind of a calendar are we eventually going to have when Jesus sets up his kingdom here on this earth? It's kind of um, fascinating to process. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavenly bodies up in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, to help us to keep track of the times and the seasons. What do we use the sun for, to keep track of what? A day. A day. And what do we have the moon for? What does that help us keep track of? Night. Uh, or still the day. It waxes and it wanes. It wanes and the it timing waxes. Timing of the month. The month, okay. So it's actually a 30-day uh, month. And that's actually the method that the ancients always used the waxing and the waning of the month uh, because of the moon and uh, and that was what was used for millennia uh, up till the time of christ in the jewish calendar the religious calendar and other calendars still use uh, the lunar calendar to to hold everything and to piece it all together Okay, so uh, when we think through the timing of our Savior and when Jesus came to die and rise again, and uh, when he began his earthly ministry and all those things, when is the commonly accepted date of Jesus' birth? Do you know?
0: Oh, man, that's a toughie.
1: (laughs) So probably 4 BC. December 25th. (laughs) (laughs) You're horrendous. (laughs)
0: This is... Uh, at one you time, you read this a long time at ago. At one time, I would have had that answer memorized, mm-hmm. along with many, many others. But that's that's why accumulating a nice library is helpful, because I have the book that you just grabbed, yeah. and I can I can consult with good resources to answer the questions.
1: Yep. And so, chronological aspects of the life of Christ by Harold Honer would be a valuable resource. May for he rest f- in peace for you to acquire. And he answers a lot of these questions in this book. And, and this book really helped me to piece together the time of Christ's death, his resurrection. And by the way, there's going to be some practical application to this when we get to the end as well. I want you just to think through, though, uh, the timing and everything that's going on at this time of the year. So Jesus began his earthly ministry around 4 BC, and it was probably in the winter. I don't have, Some people disagree with that, but it was probably in the winter He was time. born. That he was born, yes, yeah, sorry. He was born in the winter time, and December 25th is a decent roundabout date when Jesus uh, was born. And Horner makes that case. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about today. But Jesus began <laughs> his earthly ministry at about what age?
0: 30.
1: Yes, okay, so that would have been around 26 AD-ish, all yep. right, maybe 27, maybe 30. Okay, so people disagree a little bit. When did he actually begin? how long was his earthly ministry? Honor goes through all of that stuff too. Our focus here isn't on any of that. It's actually on his Passion Week. And his death. And his death. And so uh, I want to read actually an Old Testament text that refers to um, the Passover, in Exodus chapter twelve, which by the way, Exodus is twelve, would be a great chapter for you to read this time of year. Passover is uh, sun sundown Wednesday night uh, was today's the fourth, so the fifth.
0: So if you so tomorrow,
1: tomorrow, assuming we air this today, look at us being all current.
0: Well, okay, so the sun is not yet down,
1: all right. and so I'm going to te- technically
0: it'd be two days away. Oh, okay, sure, right? sure, yeah. <laughs>
1: Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, and a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your account for the lamb." Okay, so it's their first of month, and this is the beginning of the religious calendar of the Jewish people, the month of Nisan, not to be confused with an automobile company that only has one S. Oh. So in the month of Nisan, day number 10, they would take a lamb and they would bring it into the family. So it would be among them and around them. And that's the beginning. Then in verse 5, it states, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill it at twilight. Okay, so they go and they take this lamb, this Passover lamb, and they keep it until the 14th of the month. And it's at that time that they kill this Passover lamb, the 14th day of Nisan. And we remember from the narratives in the Gospels that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And on what day was he slain?
0: I'm going to go with the 14th of Nisan.
1: Ding, 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 ding. Okay, we have a winner. Uh, and in accordance to uh, the typology that God created in the sacrificial system that the Jewish people were supposed to do, they sacrificed the, the lamb on the 14th day of Nisan. And that corresponds to actually the time of Jesus' death. Um and so the 14th day of Nisan, that was the day that Jesus died. Now, there's a lot of controversy with that, and you can read about that in Hohner's book. But, um, but that was the date. That was the date of Jesus' death. Now, did Jesus die on a Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday? Where do you think? What do you think? Do you know? Do you have a position?
0: I have gone back and forth.
1: Okay, so for a very long time I thought Jesus died on a Wednesday or a Thursday. I was really more of a Thursday guy, I thought that made the most sense. Because it states that he was three days and three or three days and three nights in the grave. In the grave. And I really struggled to get three days and three nights out of out of a Friday yeah. yep. death, because there's only two nights that are at play there. And uh, actually, Honer kind of walks me walks through that, and he makes a very strong case that the rabbinics were basically communicated, uh, there is a it's a synecdoche. We think of a synecdoche as a part for the whole, but it can also be a whole for the part. And a day and a night is a whole, that's a whole day, and it could be just a part of a day. Yep. So he made a very strong case, and he kind of persuaded me that Jesus did actually die on a Friday. Yep. So Friday, Nisan 14, was the date that Jesus died. Which,
0: just can I make a side note? Go ahead. It's like you, when you read someone arguing a point, mm-hmm. we've talked about this before, and it could be something as silly as like the way a fictional story stirs your affections. Good writing does persuade you, mm-hmm. whether that's mentally or affectually. And you might say, biblically, well, what's the difference? and so you read someone who is very persuasive making a point and so like <laughs> i guarantee you when i read that book i was like oh yeah he died on a friday <laughs> and then you read someone else you know and you're like mm, i don't know i don't know um but and so like let's just just as a reminder Um, we know that the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, his substitutionary atonement, Mm -hmm. his bodily resurrection, those are fundamentals of our faith. Mm -hmm. The particular day of the week on which he did the death and the raising is not an issue of the gospel. No, it's not. And so we're thankful that my salvation doesn't ride or, or die on if I get the day right. Anyway.
1: So then what days were, what years was Nisan 14 on a Friday? And Honer can, and we can do, look at that up actually astronomically. So Mm -hmm. it'd be AD 27, 30, 33, and 36. Yep. So the two dates that would correspond to the life of Jesus would be AD 30 or 33. And Honer makes the case that the year of Jesus' death was actually AD 33. Mm Mm-hmm. And you might be like, wow, this is all fascinating information. And it is. It's kind of interesting. Uh, But if we actually celebrated Easter according to a solar calendar, okay, so Jesus' death was actually on April 3rd, AD 33. And so that would have been yesterday.
0: Ah, we missed it.
1: One day off. And then his (laughs) resurrection according to a solar day be Thursday be tomorrow April 5th
0: tomorrow? math is hard
1: yeah so Friday to Sunday so I, I thought that was actually really interesting just to think through huh using a solar calendar the death of the Messiah was April 3rd and his resurrection would have been in April 5th but we don't follow a solar calendar in the celebration of Easter we follow a lunar calendar and the sacrifice of the Passover is coming up here uh, Wednesday night, April 5th. And, um, and that's, uh, um, and that then leads me to the next thing I wanted to kind of talk about. So we think through the Passover week, a lot of people like to think through Passover. In fact, the Jewish people have something called a Seder meal. And we just had a Seder meal. Mm-hmm. Last night uh, here at Faith Baptist Bible College, we had a bunch of students join us, and we walked through kind of like a Jewish Seder, a very truncated, abbreviated version. The Jewish Seder can last a really, really long time. But within that Seder meal, they drink the four cups. And this is something that just kind of I was thinking through as we were going through the Seder meal, and I thought that I'd just kind of share with you uh, some of the things from the Seder. They have four cups of wine uh, that they drink, and those four cups of wine are they are uh, symbolic. Uh, they represent various different things. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification. And uh, it's appropriate, beginning to like a Jewish festival feast, just thinking through, you know what? Uh, pursuing sanctification, righteousness and holiness before Almighty God, very appropriate, symbolic Mm -hmm. beginning. So that's the first cup of wine. The second cup of wine is the cup of deliverance. So if you remember, Passover, Exodus chapter 12, they're coming out of Egypt. Well, why are they coming out of Egypt? Because God delivered them. Delivered them from the Egyptian oppressors, and then God is the one that they reflect upon and remember. Uh, The whole purpose of the Seder meal is to remember... um, Uh, what God did for them in obedience to the Deuteronomic law. Deuteronomy chapter six talks about, hey, you know, uh, your child's going to be like, uh, hey, dad, why do we do all this stuff? And Mm -hmm. what is that? It's a time for you to teach them.
0: One of my favorite passages, because that, that passage actually teaches righteousness, not by law keeping, but by fearing the Lord. Yes. It's like, if you keep this, commandment. Right. Like and he just got through the Shema. So like, and you know, we don't have to get into deuteronomy. I mean, great, but like most people wouldn't turn to deuteronomy to teach, "Oh, where does righteousness come from? It's not from law-keeping." Um it ca- it is, but it isn't. But it's it's anyway. Great great passage. Okay, while while I've got you. Yeah. I'm assuming uh said uh seder, Sadar sounds like a hebrew root what does that root mean
1: it means order order yeah so it's like the order of the service the order of the passover is
0: it sadar or sadar sader like if it he gets he- a
1: tsere and a sigil, sader but i'm not totally positive i should look up the hebrew sure something like that it
0: just it popped in my head i was just curious mhm like where does that word sader come from
1: I'm not sure as far as like biblical corpus. Sure. So a lot of the Seder meal is from a uh, rabbinic tradition. A lot of it's yeah. not in the Bible.
0: It's it's them practicing it and building the ritual over mm-hmm. many, many
1: years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just like uh, sometimes a good thing is started for a good reason and done in a good way What we as humans are really good at doing is taking something that was good and then making it bad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's happened a lot. I was talking to one individual, and uh, the person said, oh, I hated hated the Seder meal. It was so bad. It was so boring. One time, Grandpa kept going till like 2 in the morning, and I was just like, Grandpa, I'm going to bed. I'm not going on any further. Because uh, that specific (laughs) Jewish community uh, believed that the longer the Seder goes, then the more holy— that you are, yeah. And so you know what we need to have this service just go on and on and on and on because gotcha. we need to be holy. I mean, what is that? It's bad. It's just bad. It's external <laughs> religiosity, and that's yep. nothing what God desires. Yeah. So it's but there's a lot of good things in the seder meal that can be reflective and intentional if done in the right heart and spirit. Yeah. But, but not this whole hey, it needs to be really long as a depiction of how holy you are.
0: So, cup number one. Sanctification. Yep. Cup number two, deliverance.
1: Yep. Cup number three? Redemption.
0: Which makes a lot of sense. Doesn't
1: it? And to think through in John chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room, and he is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And to think through, did he go through a seder service, something like this? There's a high probability that he did. Okay, and so what does he do? He breaks the bread, okay? He passes around the cup, Okay, this body, or this bread is, this this juice, this this cup is, okay, which is interesting. It's the fruit of the vine, all mm-hmm. right? That's what it states. It's kind of funny. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, your communion service needs to have some wine. You know, Doug Wilson, he makes the case, you know, the gospel bites, so should your communion, uh, communion juice, okay? Oh. It should have a little bit of a bite to it.
0: I've always yeah. thought... Uh, I have two months out of the year where I prepare communion as a deacon.
1: Yeah. I've
0: always thought it'd be really funny to swap out <laughs> grape juice for prune juice and not tell anybody.
1: <laughs> You're horrendous. And then everybody
0: after communion is like, I got to go to the
1: bathroom." <laughs> You're so... I have never done it,
0: nor will I do it if you're listening to this, anyone from Maranatha. But I thought that would often be a very funny prank.
1: Okay, so that is not a prank that you want to do because of the symbolism of the cup of of redemption. Yes. The cup
0: of redemption.
1: Yes, cup of redemption, which fits because if you think through Jesus, you know, him being. The uh, the the one who purchased our redemption, and all of the soteriological truths connected to that. It, it's just fascinating to think through Jesus in the upper room passing around the the, the matzah bread, the unleavened bread, passing around uh, the cup. Okay, and 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 the symbolism that's that's uh, that's there. Okay, and then there's the fourth cup, and this is the one that that really you know. Do you remember? Uh, what what about the fourth cup? Do we know uh, concerning Jesus? And uh, do you remember? No. Okay, so remember. I Je- was
0: not at the Seder meal. Yeah, I know. So had I been, I would probably know.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's fine. And when I say it, you'll probably remember. And I'm gonna. Probably, I don't have the verses right in front of me, but but remember, you know, Jesus says, "I will not again uh, drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew
0: in my kingdom." In
1: my kingdom. Okay, and so what is the fourth cup?
0: Is it something about the kingdom?
1: Yeah, the cup of restoration.
0: Ooh, I like that.
1: Yeah. Okay, and to think through, too, what is grape juice and what is the symbolism of grape juice? This is why you should never use prune juice. And this is why—this was something I was thinking through as as I was reflecting during the the Seder service— and uh, the, the, the grape juice, okay? I'm gonna read a couple other scripture passages just to help us think through um, Christmas and Easter and not really Christmas, Easter. <laughs> but, um, you know, in Isaiah 63, we see this, this metaphor frequently. Do you know where I'm going with this? I think so. In Isaiah 63, um, we have the time of the restoration, uh, being described in a rather violent way, in Isaiah 59 we have this garments of vengeance that the that the Lord's arm uh, puts on as he comes to vindicate vindicate the the just and mete out justice against the wicked. In Isaiah 63 verse 1, it picks up on that same idea. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. See, so this is an individual that's coming up with dyed garments. Why are his garments dyed? Why? Isn't that odd? Well, the text asks the same question. Verse 2, it states, Why is your apparel red and your garments Like one who treads in the wine press. What's up with treading in the wine press, Charlie? What is that?
0: Someone has to stomp all the grapes.
1: Exactly. You got to stomp all the grapes so then the juice comes out of the grapes. And what happens to your clothes when you stomp on all the grapes? You
0: get a bunch of grape juice on yourself.
1: Wine or grape juice?
0: Well, at that point, it would be really odd for it to be wine. Okay. To have fermented that quickly.
1: What is the symbolism then of this one coming up out of the wilderness with garments that are red like one who treads in the winepress?
0: So it's he's coming with stained
1: clothes. Yep. Well, yeah. From not grapes, but
0: Yeah. Like like someone mm-hmm. who works in the wine.
1: Uh, right. That's album. a simile. Good. Yep. So now continuing into verse three, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, Mm. and I have stained all my robes. His clothes are covered with blood.
0: And then from that, you're going to go to...
1: Well, I was going to go to Revelation 19. Yeah, that's exactly where I thought you. You thought gonna. I was going to go there. Yep. Because
0: what does it say there?
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and read Revelation 19. It's the same symbolism, or same metaphor. It's the same metaphor in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce fury of the wrath of God, the ruler over all, who is the Lord God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked treading the wine press, a symbol of God meeting out justice to the wicked and deliverance to the righteous.
0: That's a beautiful picture. And just want to, can I, can I really digress?
1: I got to go for it.
0: So C.S. Lewis depicts some of these same things imaginatively. And I want you to think for a moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the lion is slain on the stone table and his blood is spilt and then the sun is rising and he comes back to life, what does Aslan do? He does not instantly run and go kill the witch. He runs to the witch's castle. And breathes on all the statues Hmm. to bring them back to life. Hmm. And then him, he, stained with his own blood, Hmm. leads the captives and goes and defeats the armies of the witch. Hmm. So that, now, is he trying to exegetically depict things? No, Lewis is not. Lewis doesn't even maybe know Revelation 19's in his Bible, okay? (laughs) But uh, he, he is...
1: Mythologically, yeah, he's imaginatively us. depicting
0: uh-huh. that to you, and so just just encourage you uh, read that, read through those stories because yeah. you know they they effectually help us uh, you know to to feel the right way about some things. Anyway, that's very similar imagery mm-hmm. there. But
1: so I want to come back to the Seder meal. We had cup number three, which was the cup of redemption.
0: I had to think about it for a moment. I know, I know, right?
1: (laughs) And the cup of redemption symbolizing the blood of Jesus. Yep. Now, I want you just to process and to think through the symbolism and how we drank the communion cup in anticipation to the Lord in his return and how Jesus' blood was shed for your blood. And to think through the symbolism of that fourth cup, the cup of restoration and the treading of the wine press and the destruction of the enemies of God, whom is myself. That is what I deserve. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve for my blood to be on his garments, but because he allowed his blood to be shed my blood does not need to be shed yep and i would encourage you just to reflect upon that this easter season his blood was shed for you so that you do not die but you live happy easter